This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joy Chan. Mysticism A Study in Nature and Development of Spiritual Consciousness by Evelyn Underhill. First Half of Part One, Chapter Four The Characteristics of Mysticism. The spiritual history of man reveals two distinct and fundamental attitudes towards the unseen, and two methods whereby he has sought to get in touch with it. For our present purpose, I will call these methods the way of magic and the way of mysticism. Having said this, we must at once add that although in their extreme forms these methods are sharply contrasted, their frontiers are far from being clearly defined. That, starting from the same point, they often confuse the inquirer by using the same language, instruments, and methods. Hence, much which is really magic is loosely and popularly described as mysticism. They represent, as a matter of fact, the opposite poles of the same thing, the transcendental consciousness of humanity. Between them lie the great religions, which might be described under this metaphor as representing the ordinarily habitable regions of that consciousness. Thus, at one end of the scale, pure mysticism shades off into religion, from some points of view seems to grow out of it. No deeply religious man is without a touch of mysticism, and no mystic can be other than religious, in the psychological, if not in the theological sense of the word. At the other end of the scale, as we shall see later, religion no less surely shades off into magic. The fundamental difference between the two is this. Magic wants to get, mysticism wants to give. Immortal and antagonistic attitudes, which turn up under one disguise or another in every age of thought. Both magic and mysticism, in their full development, bring the whole mental machinery, conscious and unconscious, to bear on their undertaking. Both claim that they give their initiates powers unknown to ordinary men. But the centre round which that machinery is grouped, the reasons of that undertaking, and the reasons to which those powers are applied, differ enormously. In mysticism, the will is united with the emotions in an impassioned desire to transcend the sense-world, in order that the self may be joined by love to the one eternal and ultimate object of love, whose existence is intuitively perceived by that which we used to call the soul, but now finds it easier to refer to as the cosmic or transcendental sense. This is the poetic and religious temperament acting upon the plane of reality. In magic, the will unites with the intellect in an impassioned desire for supersensible knowledge. This is the intellectual, aggressive, and scientific temperament trying to extend its field of consciousness until it includes the supersensual world, obviously the antithesis of mysticism, though often adopting its title and style. It will be our business later to consider in more detail the characteristics and significance of magic. Now it is enough to say that we may class broadly as magical all forms of self-seeking transcendentalism. 
"'It matters little whether the apparatus which they use "'be the incantations of the old magicians, "'the congregational prayer for reign of orthodox churchmen, "'or the consciously self-hypnotizing devices of new thought, "'whether the end proposed be the evocation of an angel, "'the power of transcending circumstance, "'or the healing of disease. "'The object is always the same, "'the deliberate exaltation of the will, "'till it transcends its usual limitations "'and obtains for the self or group of selves, something which it or they did not previously possess. It is an individualistic and acquisitive science. In all its form and activity of the intellect, seeking reality for its own purposes, or for those of humanity at large. Mysticism, whose great name is too often given to these supersensual activities, has nothing in common with this. It is non-individualistic, it implies, indeed, the abolition of individuality, of that hard separateness, that I, me, mine, which makes of man a finite, isolated thing. It is essentially a movement of the heart, seeking to transcend the limitations of the individual standpoint and to surrender itself to ultimate reality, for no personal gain, to satisfy no transcendental curiosity, to obtain no otherworldly joys, but purely from an instinct of love. By the word heart, of course we hear me not merely the seat of affections, the organ of tender emotion and the like, but rather the inmost sanctuary of personal being, the deep root of its love and will, the very source of its energy and life. The mystic is in love with the absolute, not in any idle or sentimental manner, but in that vital sense which presses at all costs and through all dangers towards union with the object beloved. Hence, whilst the practice of magic, like the practice of science, does not necessarily entail passionate emotion, though of course it does and must entail interest of some kind, mysticism, like art, cannot exist without it. We must feel, and feel acutely, before we want to act on this hard and heroic scale. We see, then, that these two activities correspond to the two eternal passions of the self, the desire of love and the desire of knowledge, severally representing the hunger of heart and intellect for ultimate truth. The third attitude towards the supersensual world, that of transcendental philosophy, hardly comes within the scope of the present inquiry, since it is purely academic, whilst both magic and mysticism are practical and empirical. Such philosophy is often wrongly called mysticism because it tries to make maps of the countries which the mystic explores. Its performances are useful, as diagrams are useful, so long as they do not ape finality, remembering that the only final thing is personal experience, the personal and costly exploration of the exalted and truth-loving soul. What then do we really mean by mysticism? A word which is impartially applied to the performances of mediums and the ecstasies of the saints, to menticulture and sorcery, dreamy poetry and medieval art, to prayer and palmistry, the doctrinal excesses of Gnosticism and the tepid speculations of the Cambridge Platonists, even, according to William James, to the higher branches of intoxication, soon ceases to have any useful meaning. 
Its employment merely confuses the inexperienced student, who ends with a vague idea that every kind of supersensual theory and practice is somehow mystical. Hence the need of fixing, if possible, its true characteristics, and restating the fact that mysticism, in its pure form, is the science of ultimates, the science of union with the absolute, and nothing else, and that the mystic is the person who attains to this union, not the person who talks about it. Not to know about, but to be, is the mark of the real initiate. The difficulty lies in determining the point at which supersensual experience ceases to be merely a practical and interesting extension of sensual experience, an enlarging, so to speak, of the boundaries of existence, and passes over into that boundless life where subject and object, desirous and desired, are one. No sharp line, but rather an infinite series of gradations separate the two states. Hence we must look carefully at all the pilgrims on the road, discover if we can the motive of their travels, the maps which they use, the luggage which they take, the end which they attain. Now we have said that the end which the mystic sets before him is conscious union with a living absolute. That divine dark, that abyss of the Godhead, of which he sometimes speaks as the goal of his quest, is just this absolute, the uncreated light in which the universe is bathed, and which, transcending as it does all human powers of expression, he can only describe to us as dark. But there is, must be, contact in an intelligible where between every individual self and this supreme self, this ultimate. In the mystic, this union is conscious, personal, and complete. He enjoys, says St. John of the Cross, a certain contact of the soul with the divinity, and it is God himself who is then felt and tasted. More or less according to his measure, he has touched, or better, been touched by, the substantial being of deity, not merely its manifestation in life. This it is which distinguishes him from the best and most brilliant of other men, and makes his science, in Patmore's words, the science of self-evident reality. Gazing with him into that unsearchable ground whence the world of becoming comes forth eternally generated in an eternal now, we may see only the icy darkness of perpetual negations. But he, beyond the coincidence of opposites, looks upon the face of perfect love. As genius in any of the arts is, humanly speaking, the final term of a power of which each individual possesses the rudiments, so mysticism may be looked upon as the final term, the active expression, of a power latent in the whole race, the power, that is to say, of so perceiving transcendent reality. Few people pass through life without knowing what it is to be at least touched by this mystical feeling. He who falls in love with a woman and perceives, as the lover really does perceive, that the categorical term girl veils a wondrous and unspeakable reality. He who, falling in love with nature, sees the landscape touched with divine light. A charming phrase to those who have not seen it, but a scientific statement to the rest. He who falls in love with the holy, or as we say, undergoes conversion, all these have truly known for an instant something of the secret of the world.
Ever and anon a trumpet sounds from the hid battlements of eternity. Those shaken mists a space unsettle, then round the half-glimpsed turrets slowly wash again. At such moments, transcendental feeling, welling up from another part of the soul, whispers to understanding and sense that they are leaving out something. What? Nothing less than the secret plan of the universe. And what is that secret plan? The other part of the soul indeed comprehends it in silence as it is, but can explain it to the understanding only in the symbolical language of the interpreter, imagination, in vision. Here, in this spark or part of the soul where the spirit is, as religion says, rests in God who made it, is the fountain alike of the creative imagination and the mystic life. Now and again something stings it into consciousness. A man is caught up to the spiritual level, catches a glimpse of the secret plan. Then hints of a marvellous truth, a unity whose note is ineffable peace, shine in created things, awakening in the self a sentiment of love, adoration and awe. Its life is enhanced. The barrier of personality is broken. Man escapes the sense world, ascends to the apex of his spirit, and enters for a brief period into the more extended life of the all. This intuition of the real lying at the root of the visible world and sustaining its life is present in a modified form in the arts. Perhaps it were better to say must be present if these arts are to justify themselves as heightened forms of experience. It is this which gives to them that peculiar vitality that strange power of communicating a poignant emotion, half torment and half joy, which baffle their more rational interpreters. We know that the picture which is like a photograph, the building which is at once handsome and commodious, the novel which is a perfect transcript of life, fail to satisfy us. It is difficult to say why this should be so, unless it were because these things have neglected their true business which was not to reproduce the illusions of ordinary men, but to catch and translate for us something of that secret plan, that reality which the artistic consciousness is able, in a measure, to perceive. Painting, as well as music and poetry, exists and exalts in immortal thoughts, says Blake. That life-enhancing power, which has been recognized as the supreme quality of good painting, has its origin in this contact of the artistic mind with the archetypal, or if you like, the transcendental, world, the underlying verity of things. A critic, in whom poetic genius has brought about the unusual alliance of intuition with scholarship, testifies to this same truth when he says of the ideals which governed early Chinese painting. In this theory, every work of art is thought of as an incarnation of the genius of rhythm, manifesting the living spirit of things with a clearer beauty and intenser power than the gross impediments of complex matter allowed to be transmitted to, our senses in the visible world around us. A picture is conceived as a sort of apparition from a more real world of essential life. That more real world of essential life is the world in which the free soul of the great mystic dwells, hovering like the six-winged seraph before the face of the Absolute. The artist, too, may cross its boundaries in his brief moments of creation, 
but he cannot stay. He comes back to us, bearing its tidings, with Dante's cry upon his lips. Non eran da charla propria penne, se non che la mia mente fu percosa da un fulgore, in case of a voglia venne. Note. Not for this were my wings fitted, save only that my mind was smitten by a lightning flash, wherein came to it its desire. End note. The mystic may say, is indeed bound to say, with St. Bernard, my secret to myself. Try how he will. His stammering and awestruck reports can hardly be understood but by those who are already in the way. But the artist cannot act thus. On him has been laid the duty of expressing something of that which he perceives. He is bound to tell his love. In his worship of perfect beauty, faith must be balanced by works. By means of veils and symbols, he must interpret his free vision, his glimpse of the burning bush, to other men. He is the mediator between his brethren and the divine, for art is the link between appearance and reality. But we do not call every one who has these partial and artistic intuitions of reality a mystic, any more than we call every one a musician who has learnt to play the piano. The true mystic is the person in whom such powers transcend the merely artistic and visionary stage and are exalted to the point of genius, in whom the transcendental consciousness can dominate the normal consciousness and who has definitely surrendered himself to the embrace of reality. As artists stand in a peculiar relation to the phenomenal world, receiving rhythms and discovering truths and beauties which are hidden from other men, so this true mystic stands in a peculiar relation to the transcendental world, there experiencing actual, but to us, unimaginable tension and delight. His consciousness is transfigured in a particular way. He lives at different levels of experience from other people, and this, of course, means that he sees a different world, since the world as we know it is the product of certain scraps or aspects of reality acting upon a normal and untransfigured consciousness. Hence his mysticism is no isolated vision, no fugitive glimpse of reality, but a complete system of life carrying its own guarantees and obligations. As other men are immersed in and react to natural or intellectual life, so the mystic is immersed in and reacts to spiritual life. He moves towards that utter identification with its interests, which he calls union with God. He has been called a lonely soul. He might more properly be described as a lonely body, for his soul, peculiarly responsive, sends out and receives communications upon every side. The earthly artist, because perception brings with it the imperative longing for expression, tries to give us in colour, sound or words a hint of his ecstasy, his glimpse of truth. Only those who have tried know how small a fraction of his vision he can, under the most favourable circumstance, contrive to represent. The mystic too tries very hard to tell an unwilling world his secret. But in his case the difficulties are enormously increased. First, there is the huge disparity between his unspeakable experience 
and the language which will most nearly suggest it. Next, there is the great gulf fixed between his mind and the mind of the world. His audience must be bewitched as well as addressed, caught up to something of his state, before they can be made to understand. Were he a musician, it is probable that the mystic could give his message to other musicians in the terms of that art far more accurately than language will allow him to do. For we must remember that there is no excuse but that of convenience for the preeminence amongst modes of expression which we accord to words. These correspond so well to the physical plane and its adventures that we forget that they have but the faintest of relations with transcendental things. Even the artist, before he can make use of them, is bound to rearrange them in accordance with the laws of rhythm, obeying unconsciously the rule by which all arts tend to approach the condition of music. So too the mystic. Mysticism, the most romantic of adventures, from one point of view the art of arts, their source and also their end, finds naturally enough its closest correspondences in the most purely artistic and most deeply significant of all forms of expression. The mystery of music is seldom realized by those who so easily accept its gifts. Yet of all the arts, music alone shares with great mystical literature the power of waking in us a response to the life movement of the universe, brings us, we know not how, news of its exultant passions and its incomparable peace. Beethoven heard the very voice of reality, and little of it escaped when he translated it for our ears. The medieval mind, more naturally mystical than ours, and therefore more sharply aware of the part which rhythmic harmony plays in the worlds of nature and of grace, gave to music a cosmic importance, discerning its operation in many phenomena which we now attribute to that dismal figment, law. There are three kinds of music, says Hugh of St. Victor, the music of the worlds, the music of humanity, the music of instruments. Of the music of the worlds, one is of the elements, another of the planets, another of time. Of that which is of the elements, one is of number, another of weights, another of measure. Of that which is of the planets, one is of place, another of motion, another of nature. Of that which is of time, one is of the days and the vicissitudes of light and darkness, another of the months and the waxing and waning of the moon, another of the years and the changes of spring, summer, autumn, and winter. Of the music of humanity, one is of the body, another of the soul, another in the connection that is between them. Thus the life of the visible and invisible universe consists in a supernal fugue. One contemplative at least, Richard Rowell of Hampole, the father of English mysticism, was acutely aware of this music of the soul, discerning in it a correspondence with the measured harmonies of the spiritual universe. In those enraptured descriptions of his inward experience, which are among the jewels of mystical literature, nothing is more remarkable than his constant and deliberate employment of musical imagery. This alone, it seems, could catch and translate for him the character of his experience of reality. The condition of joyous and awakened love to which the mystic passes when his purification is at an end 
is to him, above all else, the state of song. He does not see the spiritual world, he hears it. For him, as for St. Francis of Assisi, it is a heavenly melody, intolerably sweet. Song I call, he says, when an, a plenteous soul the sweetness of eternal love with burning is taken, and thought into song is turned, and the mind into full sweet sound is changed. He who experiences this joyous exaltation says not his prayers like other righteous men, but is taken into marvellous mirth, and, goodly sound being descended into him, as it were with notes his prayers he sings. So Gertrude Moore, O oh, let me sit alone, silent to all the world, and it to me that I may learn the song of love. Roll's own experience of mystic joy seems actually to have come to him in this form, the perceptions of his exalted consciousness presenting themselves to his understanding under musical conditions, as other mystics have received them in the form of pictures or words. I give in his own words the classic description of his passage from the first state of burning love to the second state of songful love, from calor to canor, when into song of joy meditation is turned. In the night, before supper, as I my psalms sung, as it were the sound of readers, or rather singers about me, I beheld. Whilst also praying, to heaven with all desire I took heed. Suddenly, in what manner I wot not, in me the sound of song I felt, and likeliest heavenly melody I took, with me dwelling in mind. Forsooth my thought continually to mirth of song was changed, and my meditation to praise turned, and my prayers and psalm-saying in sound I showed. The song, however, is a mystic melody having little in common with its clumsy image earthly music. Bodily song lets it, and noise of janglers makes it turn again to thought, for sweet ghostly song accords not with outward song, the which in churches and elsewhere is used. It discords much, for all that is man's voice is formed with bodily ears to be heard. But among angels' tunes it has an acceptable melody, and with marvel it is commended of them that have known it. To others it is incommunicable. Worldly lovers soothly words or ditties of our song may know, for the words they read, but the tone and sweetness of that song they may not learn. Such symbolism as this, a living symbolism of experience and action as well as of statement, seems almost essential to mystical expression. The mind must employ some device of the kind if its transcendental perceptions, wholly unrelated as they are to the phenomena with which intellect is able to deal, are ever to be grasped by the surface consciousness. Sometimes the symbol and the perception which it represents become fused in that consciousness, and the mystic's experience then presents itself to him as visions or voices, which we must look upon as the garment he has himself provided to veil that reality upon which no man may look and live. The nature of this garment will be largely conditioned by his temperament, as in Roll's evident bias towards music, St. Catherine of Genoa's leaning towards the abstract conceptions of fire and light, and also by his theological education and environment. Cases in point are the highly dogmatic visions and auditions of St. Gertrude, Suso, St. Catherine of Siena, the Blessed Angela Foligno, 
above all of St. Teresa, whose marvellous self-analyses provide the classic account of these attempts of the mind to translate transcendental intuitions into concepts with which it can deal. The greatest mystics, however, Rusburick, St. John of the Cross, and St. Teresa herself in her later stages, distinguish clearly between the ineffable reality which they perceive and the image under which they describe it. Again and again they tell us, with Dionysius and Eckhart, that the object of their contemplation hath no image, or with St. John of the Cross, that the soul can never attain to the height of the divine union so far as it is possible in this life through the medium of any forms or figures. Therefore the attempt which has sometimes been made to identify mysticism with such forms and figures, with visions, voices, supernatural favours and other abnormal phenomena, is clearly wrong. The highest and most divine things which it has given us to see and to know, says Dionysius the Areopagite plainly, are but the symbolic language of things subordinate to him who himself transcendeth them all, through which things his incomprehensible presence is shown, walking on those heights of his holy places which are perceived by the mind. The mystic, as a rule, cannot wholly do without symbol and image, inadequate to his vision though they must always be, for his experience must be expressed if it is to be communicated, and its actuality is inexpressible except in some sidelong way, some hint or parallel which will stimulate the dormant intuition of the reader and convey, as all poetic language does, something beyond its surface sense. Hence the large part which is played in all mystical writings by symbolism and imagery, and also by that rhythmic and exalted language which induces in sensitive persons something of the languid ecstasy of dream. The close connection between rhythm and heightened states of consciousness is as yet little understood. Its further investigation will probably throw much light on ontological as well as psychological problems. Mystical no less than musical and poetic perception, tends naturally, we know not why, to present itself in rhythmical periods, a feature which is also strongly marked in writings obtained in the automatic state. So constant is this law in some subjects that Baron von Hugel adopted the presence or absence of rhythm as a test whereby to distinguish the genuine utterances of St. Catherine of Genoa from those wrongly attributed to her by successive editors of her legend. All kinds of symbolic language come naturally to the articulate mystic, who is often a literary artist as well, so naturally that he sometimes forgets to explain that his utterance is but symbolic, a desperate attempt to translate the truth of that world into the beauty of this. It is here that mysticism joins hands with music and poetry. Had this fact always been recognised by its critics, they would have been saved from many regrettable and some ludicrous misconceptions. Symbol, the clothing which the spiritual borrows from the material plane, is a form of artistic expression. That is to say, it is not literal, but suggestive. Though the artist who uses it may sometimes lose sight of this distinction. Hence the persons who imagine that the spiritual marriage of St. Catherine or St. Teresa veils a perverted sexuality, that the vision of the sacred heart involved an incredible anatomical experience, 
or that the divine inebriation of the Sufis is the apotheosis of drunkenness, do but advertise their ignorance of the mechanism of the arts. Like the lady who thought that Blake must be mad because he said that he had touched the sky with his finger. Further, the study of the mystics, the keeping company, however humbly with their minds, brings with it, as music or poetry does, but in a far greater degree, a strange exhilaration, as if we were brought near to some mighty source of being, were at last on the verge of the secret which all seek. The symbols displayed, the actual words employed, when we analyse them, are not enough to account for such effect. It is rather that these messages from the waking transcendental self of another stir our own deeper selves in their sleep. It were hardly an extravagance to say that those writings which are the outcome of true and first-hand mystical experience may be known by this power of imparting to the reader the sense of exalted and extended life. All mystics, says St. Martin, speak the same language for they come from the same country. The deep, undying life within us came from that country too, and it recognises the accents of home, though it cannot always understand what they would say. Now, returning to our original undertaking, that of defining, if we can, the characteristics of true mysticism, I think that we have already reached a point at which William James has celebrated four marks of the mystic state, ineffability, noetic quality, transiency and passivity, will fail to satisfy us. In their place, I propose to set out, illustrate and, I hope, justify four other rules or notes which may be applied as tests to any given case which claims to take rank amongst the mystics. 1. True mysticism is active and practical, not passive and theoretical. It is an organic life process, a something which the whole self does, not something as to which its intellect holds an opinion. 2. Its aims are wholly transcendental and spiritual. It is in no way concerned with adding to, exploring, rearranging or improving anything in the visible universe. The mystic brushes aside that universe, even in its supernormal manifestations though he does not, as his enemies declare, neglect his duty to the many, his heart is always set upon the changeless one. 3. This one is for the mystic, not merely the reality of all that is, but also a living and personal object of love, never an object of exploration. It draws his whole being homeward, but always under the guidance of the heart. 4. Living union with this one which is the term of his adventure, is a definite state or form of enhanced life. It is obtained neither from an intellectual realization of its delights, nor from the most acute emotional longings. Though these must be present, they are not enough. It is arrived at by an arduous psychological and spiritual process, the so-called mystic way, entailing the complete remaking of character and the liberation of a new, or rather latent, form of consciousness, which imposes on the self the condition which is sometimes inaccurately called ecstasy, but is better named the unitive state. Mysticism, then, is not an opinion. It is not a philosophy. 
It has nothing in common with the pursuit of occult knowledge. On the one hand, it is not merely the power of contemplating eternity. On the other, it is not to be identified with any kind of religious queerness. It is the name of that organic process which involves the perfect consummation of the love of God, the achievement here and now of the immortal heritage of man. Or, if you like it better, for this means exactly the same thing, it is the art of establishing his conscious relation with the Absolute. The movement of the mystic consciousness towards this consummation is not merely the sudden admission to an overwhelming vision of truth, though such dazzling glimpses may, from time to time, be vouchsafed to the soul. It is rather an ordered movement towards ever higher levels of reality, ever closer identification with the infinite. The mystic experience, says Rézéja, ends with the words, I live, yet not I, but God in me. This feeling of identification, which is the term of mystical activity, has a very important significance. In its early stages, the mystic consciousness feels the absolute in opposition to the self. As mystic activity goes on, it tends to abolish this opposition. When it has reached its term, the consciousness finds itself possessed by the sense of a being at one and the same time greater than the self and identical with it great enough to be God, intimate enough to be me. This is that mystic union which is the only possible fulfillment of mystic love, since all that is not one must ever suffer with the wound of absence, and whoever in love's city enters finds but room for one, and but in oneness union. The history of mysticism is the history of the demonstration of this law upon the plane of reality. Now, how do these statements square with the practice of the great mystics, and with the various forms of activity which have been classified at one time or another as mystical? 1. Mysticism is practical, not theoretical. This statement, taken alone, is not, of course, enough to identify mysticism, since it is equally true of magic, which also proposes to itself something to be done rather than something to be believed. It at once comes into collision, however, with the opinions of those who believe mysticism to be the reaction of the born Platonist upon religion. The difference between such devout philosophers and the true mystic is the difference which George Tyrrell held to distinguish revelation from theology. Mysticism, like revelation, is final and personal. It is not merely a beautiful and suggestive diagram, but experience in its most intense form. That experience, in the words of Plotinus, is the soul's solitary adventure, the flight of the alone to the alone. It provides the material, the substance upon which mystical philosophy cogitates, as theologians cogitate upon the revelation which forms the basis of faith. Hence those whom we are to accept as mystics must have received, and acted upon, intuitions of a truth which is for them absolute. If we are to acknowledge that they knew the doctrine, they must have lived the life, submitted to the interior travail of the mystic way, not merely have reasoned about the mystical experiences of others.
We could not well dispense with our Christian Platonists and mystical philosophers. They are our stepping-stones to higher things. Interpret to our dull minds, entangled in the sense-world, the ardent vision of those who speak to us from the dimension of reality. But they are no more mystics than the milestones on the Dover Road are travellers to Calais. Sometimes their words, the wistful words of those who know but cannot be, produce mystics, as the sudden sight of a signpost pointing to the sea will rouse the spirit of adventure in a boy. Also, there are many instances of true mystics, such as Eckhart, who have philosophized upon their own experiences, greatly to the advantage of the world, and others, Plotinus is the most characteristic example, of Platonic philosophers who have passed far beyond the limits of their own philosophy, and abandoned the making of diagrams for an experience, however imperfect, of the reality at which these diagrams hint. It were more accurate to reverse the epigram above stated and say that Platonism is the reaction of the intellectualist upon mystical truth. End of the first half of part one, chapter four.